So I've been gardening lately. Um, haven't really gardened a whole lot in my life, but I've just been really, really, really getting into gardening. Really, it feels like, you know, as, as it, it dawned on me several weeks ago, as I garden and I, I tend these plants, I, I had a very, very strong impression that this is, I, I feel like what God feels like as he watches and tends to our faith. And it's such a joy to watch a plant and I worry about it and I'm staring out the window at it all the time. And during the winter, I'm wondering, is it going to come back to life? And it just... It kind of wrecks me just a little bit, and, and then to see it suddenly bloom, and, and I, I just get the impression that, that, that God looks at us in kind of the same manner. So, so anyway, I, I have some success stories, and I want to share a not-so-successful story. So I planted five tomato plants. One of them is producing fruit, and I was like, what? You know, I'm watering the crazy thing to death. I'm just watering it, and I didn't do a whole lot else. I, I think I threw a little bit of fertilizer on top, but it, it just, I, I thought, well, just water it, just water it. Give it lots of water, right? It, that, that, that's, that's got really pretty plants, but there's no fruit. There, there, there's no fruit. And, and so finally, uh, we're getting to know all of our neighbors, and across the street, we have a, just, a, just a, man, a wonderful family. Um, and he, he comes over, and he says uh, he has a, a master's degree in agronomy or plants or whatever it is. I, I don't remember what it was, but um, he said, well, you're, you're watering it too much. You, if you, you can overwater it. You need to allow it to dry out, and you also need to be doing all these pruning and trimming and all this stuff. And I, oh, okay, right? right. Um, so, you know, I could have Googled this stuff. I could have watched YouTube. I, I could have done a lot of things, but no, I just kind of thought in my mind this stuff will happen automatically. It, it, just, it just happens naturally. Um, I was wrong. I was, I was very, very wrong. Um, a whole bunch of plants, again, the, the, they look incredibly healthy, but absolutely no fruit. And I think to the surprise of many believers, this kind of resembles or is very similar to their, their walk of faith. Um, in the parable of the sower, Jesus points this out to the crowds that were, were following him constantly. And in Mark chapter 4, um, this is also in Matthew chapter 13 and Luke 8, and, and what I'm going to do is I'm only going to focus on, you know, in the parable, there's four soils, uh, the, the blind heart or the hard heart, the hard path, um, the rocky heart, which we're going to talk about this morning, the rebellious heart, uh, thorns and so forth, and then a, then a healthy heart. Um, but I want to zero in on the, on the rocky soil. So starting in Mark chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, uh, at the rocky soil part, the rest of it, you need, that's your homework, all right? Okay? You don't want to be around here until 1 o'clock. Um, some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, so it wasn't compacted, it, it, barely loose. Um, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. They'd never developed a strong root system. So they sprang up quickly. I just kind of want to point out this very much. Lots of excitement, lots of joy, lots of expectations, right? And it's a beautiful, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's nothing, and I'm not negating that or anything, anything like that, um, because absolutely so far there's nothing wrong, really. You know, we, we see a lot of people whose faith, they just, it just takes off right at the beginning. It's beautiful, and it's like a fireworks, you know, it's just it's, it's a crazy, crazy thing. And it's really identical to the healthy part, heart so far, so far. Um, but in verses 16 and 17, Jesus gives us a little bit more details. Um, what happens next is just, just absolutely crucial. Others, like seed sown on the rocky places, hear the word, and at once they receive it with joy, right? There's no hard heart. There's no rebellion. There's nothing like that. Everything is just really 
right? Everything's really fantastic up to this point, just, just a really joyful heart. But since they have no root, they last only a short time, right? Joyful heart, but they never thought about the care and the nourishment and the nurture, right, that were given to their newfound joy and their newfound walk with Christ. They just, like me and my, my lack of tomatoes, we just figured, they just figured it would all happen naturally. It would just, God will take care of all that. I just got to hit the altar and good to go. Um, <laughs> no real work or effort on my part. And again, we, we, many people of faith, we, we, we'd make that same mistake. We just figure, well, I, all I got to do is make that initial decision, and, and God takes care of everything else in the world. So, well, the same as my tomatoes. Verse 17 ends with, when trouble and persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. We have terms in churches falling from grace, stumbling, kind of get the idea. Um, without proper care and nourishment, we can look good. For a time, I'm telling you, those five, well, those other four plants, they look fantastic. But like Jesus, when he looked at the fig tree and he's looking under, there's nothing there. It's, it's not producing any fruit. It looks great. Do you know Christians like that? They look great, and then when you bump them or when there's, what, trouble or persecution, weird stuff hops out. It's like, whoa, where'd that come from? I, I, I've done that. Okay, let's stop picking on each other. Um, Looks great, the, the initial emotions wear off, the excitement, and there's no fruit. So this morning I'd like to challenge all and ask us a, a, a question, a t tough question. How are you tending to your soul garden, right? How's the fruit in your garden? This morning, you know, how do we nourish and how do we nurture all that God makes possible? And Dan's been making that point the last three weeks, God initiates everything. Seeking grace, you know, that sneaky grace, it's there. We don't even know it's there yet. And we look back in our lives and we realize, wow, it wasn't really all happening just there at the altar. There were people praying. There were events. There were things that God was drawing, you know, that prevenient grace. Um, one of our general superintendents who wrote the book that Dan and I are working from, by the way, I, I just... Dan can't hear me. Dog on it. I, I just I want to thank Dan for he carried a load for the last three weeks. I was only supposed to be gone for two, and I, and I loaded a whole bunch more on him. And thank you for the cards that were sent and, and your prayers. Okay. All right. Diane's over there. You've got to remember to thank them. You need to understand how much she plays into this, this thing going on here. Um, anyway, Dr. Busick writes this book, and he writes this. In Seeking Grace, or that sneaky, prevenient grace... In seeking grace, God woos our heart, and in saving grace, He captures our heart, and in sanctifying grace, He cleanses our heart. And again, these phrases really aren't together in the Bible, kind of like the word Trinity, um, but as we look at the Bible and we study the Bible, we see that there's grace upon grace upon grace, and, and they kind of happen at different points in our journey of faith. So scholars and, and theologians have come up with these terms, although you won't find them in the Bible. Um, so I just kind of wanted to point that out. Um, and at this point, we're very similar to the joyful heart that joyfully receives the graces, right? You know, God sneaked up on us, and, and he wooed us, and, and then he saved us, and he began sanctifying us, and, and we're excited, and we're filled with joy, and we're just, oh, this is fantastic. But then we assume that the rest will just happen automatically, right? No real effort, no work on our part. 
And I think we all know folks, right? We've, we've met people and we, we've watched and they're so excited. And, 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 I, and I think of Peter, right? He was, oh, I'll never, I'll never forsake you. And the first time of trouble or persecution, <laughs> Peter's out the door, right? He, he didn't have that Holy Spirit yet. He didn't really understand. He wasn't even at that point where he had been sanctified. And, and, and he, 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 he knew our Savior. But when the Savior left the room, oh, Peter, he, he, he didn't do too well. He eventually does really well. In fact, he writes a lot of our Bible, so he did really well. Um, and at this point, again, we, we got this joyful heart, and we're re- joyful to receiving these graces. Um, you know, again, we all know people like this. There's an initial excitement, right? There's, there's epic moments, um, powerful emotions, bold commitments and, and, and declarations, and but then it all withers when the going gets tough. And, and new believers wonder, what happened? God, why aren't you continuing your work? Come on. Get, and you almost you blame God. And yet what I want to share this morning is he's given us everything that we need to sustain our grace. He sought us out. He saved us. He continues to sanctify us. But we've got some work to do, right? We've got some work to do to sustain what he has made possible in our lives. Um, a lot of churches, and I'm, and I'm going to say this very bluntly, very black and white, I'm overstating it, so if I insult anybody, and even as I share this alternative viewpoint and alternative interpretation of Christ, I believe that if you believe this, I will, you will be joining me in heaven, all right? So we, they, we will all be together in heaven. It's just a different perspective, okay? So pl- please don't. <laughs> I, I'm not being mean to other aspects of faith in other churches. Some churches believe in this idea, and again, I'm going to say it black and whitish, uh, once saved, always saved, right? Um, it's, and that's just one aspect or, or an implication of a Reformed or a Calvinist theology um, of predestination. Um, but, but the Nazarene church, we, that's not what we believe in. And again, I believe if you are a hardcore predestinationist, I'm going to join you in heaven, you're going to join us in heaven. I Okay, so, but we're, we're seeing it this way. The problem for us, for us Wesleyan Armenian folk, um, that this idea, this, this predestined, this once saved, always saved, what it does, it implies that we have no real or meaningful or consequential, our actions don't matter. God's doing everything. We can just, psh, I, I hit the altar, I'm good to go. Everyone, all the rest of you, just do that, you're good to go. We don't need to love each other, we don't need to do anything. God takes care of the rest. It implies that we have, again, no consequential part in any sustaining activities, let alone God's gracious initiating of his seeking, saving, and sanctifying activities. And we see this rather clearly in the passage that Leanne read just earlier. Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter. (laughs) It's a sweet, short little thing. Um, If you ever get challenged to read a book of the Bible, sign up for Jude really quick if you're not a good reader. I'm just saying. Um, So to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Let me just point out a couple quick things real quick. To keep you from, uh, some of your translations might say slipping. Some of them might say something like falling from grace, along those terms. Um, And there's really two ways to read this, two ways to interpret this. We all interpret. We we just do. Um, We believe as Nazarenes that we cooperate. This, This is us cooperating with him, and therefore he is able to keep us from slipping because we work in conjunction. We cooperate with God. Um, But you can also read it as God taking over our will somewhat, taking over our desires and making us somewhat 
I'm saying this carefully, um, robotic, um, without the dignity of being free to either love him or love him or not love him. Um, but a lot of people feels, feel that that's not really love. Um, I guess scripturally that we, we could say that that's God still treating us like servants rather than children of the king. And again, without fault, Dan made this point really well last week. It's not about a sinless, perfect behavior in this world. I don't think anybody cannot be honest about their own lives and say, I've reached the point of sinless perfection. That, that's, a, that, that's a tall order. And if you have, all I can say is you'll probably make people mad if you say that because <laughs> the rest of us are struggling mightily and, and we're all at different paths on, on that struggling kind of thing. Um, so without fault, it, it, it's, you know, a heart really fully devoted. And this is what John Wesley wrote when he meant it. Sometimes over the years, words change. You know, and our current understanding of the word perfect is without fault, without sin. But really what he was talking about was a heart, not behavior. Big difference. Um, fully devoted and surrendered to his will rather than a perfected behavior, a sinless, right, that, you know, before glorification when we join him. And then the passage continues, to the only God our Savior be power and majesty and majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord um, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Now, people have failed to dig deep roots through steady, consistent um, practices of faith. Um, they often falter when times get tough and the emotions and and the initial excitement, it wears off, and it does. We experience that. We see that experience, and it tells us that, honestly tells us that. Um, and by the time Christ returns, or time on earth has run out for us, and, or times, hard times hit, right, joy's left the building. <laughs> joy has left the building. Um, and we've fallen, or, or really I like the word we've squandered, what God made available to us. I, I think I, I like that phrase a little bit more. We've squandered this incredible gift that he gave us, and we just kind of laid it on a shelf, and it got dusty, and we never really took it out and played with it, right? That's way I can say that. Um, and again, not just our hearts, but our behaviors um, will, when we are glorified, they will become perfected, but, but not until that point. So this morning, how are you tending to the gracious gifts that God has bestowed on you? How are you tending to your soul garden? In other words, what sustains, what activities have you picked up, what consistent behaviors have you picked up and decided, I need to make these a part of my life in order to not squander his seeking, saving, and sanctifying graces already at work in your lives? And again, this can be tricky business. People kind of get a little edgy and you know, this is works righteousness. Whoa, 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 whoa. But there's a difference. There's a difference. And again, I can't remember who wrote this. Um, there's a difference between working to try to earn grace and working the grace that God has already afforded us. There's a big difference between those two ideas. And too often we reduce the practice of faith to just one or two things, kind of like what I did with my tomatoes. I thought, well, I'll just water them to death, and apparently that's what I did. I watered them to death. Um, we might have experienced a lot of people um, experience is everything. That, that's the one thing. They, they, they chase after these experiences, but we, we can't become addicted to experiences. Um, we end up hopping from one worship experience, 
one altar call, one spiritual high to the next, and I kind of in the back of my mind, I'm not sure if we're any better than drug addicts, right? I need another high. I need another high or I'm going to lose my faith. You know, someone's got, something's got to happen. Something's got to happen. Or when times, hard times hit, we, I wonder if that was real. Maybe that was just all my excitement and maybe the whole thing is a false. Somebody's pulling my leg, right? When all the initial excitement wears off. And then rather than the truth of Scripture and, and faith, we chase after that spiritual high. Or it might be behavior, that, you know, that one thing that you think, okay, that's going to be my sustaining thing, right? I'm going I'm 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 to perfect everything. Um, and then we, so, so we add all these rules and we relate regulations and all the do's and the don'ts. And, 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 and well-meaning, these were all very, very well-meaning things, ideas, um, you know, constraints on sinfulness. But what happens, it leads to legalism. And then we become overly and sinfully judgmental when people don't measure up to us. Or again, it might be knowledge. We try to sustain our grace and, and the faith and the grace that God has given us by having the right knowledge. We spend all of our time learning and defending and, and arguing propositional truth. I mean, get on social media. Whoo! I, I fell into that trap a little bit early on. I'm like, oh my gosh, Jerry, stop it. What is your problem? That's not what faith is. That's like faith minus love, right? And we're yelling at everybody on social media who don't believe exactly what we believe, who don't believe that, you know, that person's going to hell and that person's going to heaven, and by golly, we're going to prove that that person's going to hell. What? (laughs) It's all about the right interpretation of the Bible, the right theological doctrines. But right knowledge without a right heart, it, it leaves us wanting, um, you've heard the phrase, I, the evil one, has, he knew his scripture forwards and backwards, but I wouldn't call him a good Christian. I, I don't know about y'all, but no, he missed the boat. He missed the idea there. Um, he lacked love. Or maybe it's about being super, super, super spiritual, right? We believe that if we get, just get alone and we, we read our Bibles enough and we pray enough and we volunteer for enough ministries, and well, that'll take care of everything. Right? That, that'll do the trick. And we attack our spirituality with like this holy vengeance. Um, we become obsessive about our quiet time. Now, those aren't bad necessarily, bad situations, bad things. But then we beat ourselves up if we falter. And we, and we decide, well, I guess I'm not a good enough Christian and because we perceive not being absolutely on top of every devotional minute and hour and we then view ourselves as failures, and we beat ourselves up, and we beat up everyone else um, if they don't measure up to our fervor, our super spirituality. I don't know, maybe you've met folks like that. And again, next week, we're going to be talking about this idea of sufficient grace, because you get into that point where His grace isn't sufficient. You actually begin to believe that, man, I've, I need to take the, the wheel of this vehicle here because I, I got to... Uh, so we just lose the will to fight on. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with any of these. I hope you didn't catch that idea. There's nothing wrong with any of them. Experiences are good. Rules can be used to create healthy boundaries in our lives. We need to know what we believe, right? And spiritual disciplines, they play an incredibly important role. Um, but none of them alone is sufficient. None of them alone is sufficient. The joy with which a person receives the gracious actions, the work of God, must be properly cared for, must be properly nourished and nurtured. The nude Christian cannot become passive. 
right? Hoping that the abundant life that promised by Jesus will just, it'll happen. It'll eventually happen. And then several years down the road, we, well, it didn't happen, so I guess this whole thing's a joke, and I'm out of the building. I'm gone. That initial joy of salvation, the sudden desire, really? You talk to people who have found Christ, and they're, they're brand new followers, and they just like, I love everybody. <laughs> I'll forgive everybody. I, I, just, I, just, I just want to give grace and mercy, and, and I'm, I'm so excited about all this, and oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. All made possible, enabled by a gracious heavenly father. This is grace. I like the word to use the phrase a gracious heavenly father because grace, people get a little bit confused with that. All made possible by an incredibly gracious and loving heavenly father. All of these things must be cultivated. I love that phrase. If you notice Jesus, almost Kelly, I don't know how many, I, I couldn't begin to count the... A lot of cultivation stuff. I mean, these, these, were, these were farmers. These were people of the earth. And, and if you're a farmer, you know, if you live out in these regions, I am not a farmer. I've proven that already. Um, but, but a lot of people who read Scripture who are farmers, they just get it. They just, boom, they, they don't need somebody up here to interpret for them. Like, they just get it. Um, none of these, none of these are sufficient. So we need to cultivate these new habits and these acquired practices. Um, a, a brilliant theologian, N.T. Wright, um, he's an Anglican higher up, and he's very high, a brilliant guy, kind of the new C.S. Lewis, whatever. Uh, he makes this point when he writes this. He says, these new desires, you know, I want to love everybody, I want to forgive everybody, and I don't care what you're doing, I love you. Um, these new desires are the blossoms, right, the blossoms. But to get the fruit, you got to learn to be a gardener. You have to discover how to tend and prune, how to irrigate the field and how to keep the birds and the squirrels away. You have to watch for blight and mold and cut away the ivy and the other parasites that suck the life out of the tree. you got to make sure that the young trunk can withstand the winds, right? Only then will the fruit appear. And I, I found that out by experience. I would have just been guessing, except for my experience with my stupid tomatoes. So Dr. Busey writes this. He says, the blossoms are certainly the sign of Christ in you, the hope of glory, from 1 Colossians 1.27. But to get to the actual fruit of a mature Christ-like character, we must become gardeners. The seeds must now begin to bear fruit. Surrendered desires produce what John Wesley called holy tempers. We need to understand that in our modern usage as a, as a holy temperament, a holy attitude. Right? Holy attitude. Um, a new disposition, really, which yields Christ-like thinking and actions that begin to function in second nature ways. And all of this, always initiated by a graciously loving Heavenly Father. All of these things, right, become the grace that sustains. This idea of a, of a second nature, I, I shared with you, I looked through my notes about two years ago. I shared with you, and I want to share it again, the story of Captain Sully. Uh, Tom Hanks, if you, you watch the movies, he, he, he played the part of Captain Sullenberg. Um, in his book, N.T. Wright's book, um, After You Believe, and that's the book I worked from. If you ever want to grab a hold of that, I did a whole series, What's Next? Incredible book, incredible book. I'm on January 15, 2009, two minutes into the takeoff, the plane slammed into a flock of geese. Nobody ever says anything about those poor flock of geese. But anyway, knocking out power both engines, and he's heading over the Bronx, right, one of the most densely populated places in the city, if not on earth. So he's heading over, the, heading over this area, and in just three minutes before landing, Sully and his co-pilot have to make some really vital decisions. They've got to make some hard calls very quickly. 
right, very, very quickly to avoid killing thousands of people. And I'm just going to give you a quick list. This, this was in the book. Um, he had to shut down the engines, had to set the speed to glide. He had to get the nose down to maintain speed. If any of you are pilots, this is making total sense to the rest of us, like, okay, whatever. Um, he had to disconnect the autopilot, override the flight management system, activate the ditch system, making the plane waterproof. I don't know how that happens. And most importantly, with absolutely no engine power, right? This is the crazy part. He had to fly the plane in a tight left-hand turn to land the plane going with the flow of the river, quickly straighten the plane to land level from side to side, and then get the plane nose back up and level to land straight and flat on the water. Now, some say this is a miracle. This was a miracle. Captain Sullenberg doesn't deny the miracle, but he says the miracle really operates for, for him in a different fashion than what people think, well, God took the controls and he became a robot and God landed the plane. God didn't land the plane. Captain Sully landed the plane. Captain Sully says that the real miracle, the real miracle that was at work was, was the power of learned habits and acquired practices. Years and years and years and, and hours, 10,000 hours many times these pilots, he'd been doing this for a long time. And you notice even with 10,000 hours I, I've been with pilots, they have a little checklist. They don't commit it to... Too many lives are at stake. They go carefully down, and, and it becomes almost second nature to them, but they still, they still look at that checklist. They still check those things off. Again, begs the question, what if they needed to look things up at that point? Somebody grab the, hey, grab the owner's manual. What, what, what do we do? What's this button do? Right? Get on the Internet. What do you do if your plane loses power? I mean, thousands would have died, but Captain Sully, everything kicked in. It was like second nature. It was, just, it was automatic. Your Heavenly Father wants to develop in all of us, in each one of you, right, this, this, this Christ-like character where, you're, where when somebody bumps into you, weirdness doesn't hop out, but love hops out. You ever, you ever see, meet somebody, like they look so good, and then you, you kind of tick them off a little bit, like, whoa, a dragon suddenly hopped out of you. Where did that come from? Well, they looked really good, but they, they had no fruit. There was no fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Dr. Busey writes this, lots of folks want to be like sister or brother so-and-so. She just seems so close to God, right? I just see so much of Jesus in him. He or she is just, they're just such a saint. But here's what people don't know and they don't see. Hours spent alone with Jesus in meditation and prayer, right? Decades spent in service to their family of faith and their local community. There's this idea Paul writes about. He's talking about the grace of God and how amazing it is. And some folks, well, golly, so what you're saying is if we sin more, then the grace of God will be even more. But I would suggest the exact opposite. When you're spending time loving your community, loving your family of faith, loving your neighbor, loving God, that takes, you understand what we've been preaching now for four weeks, that is all initiated by God's grace. So if you want, and I, I can't remember who wrote it, if you want to... If you want to burn up, burn grace like a 747 burns fuel on takeoff, right? If you want to just grace upon grace upon grace, it's in loving others, not in sinning more. When you start loving people and loving people and loving people and forgiving them and forgiving them, that's where grace abounds. That's where you're going to find boatloads, boatloads of grace. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, well, let me just read the rest of his slide here. Sister or brother so-and-so, they've gardened the fruit of the Spirit. 
They've tended to their souls. They've tended to the sustaining activities so they don't squander what God has initiated and they accept it joyfully. Um, That's why love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control seem so obviously present like, wow, I wanted that. Nobody gave me that for Christmas. Well, nobody gave it to her or him either. They, they developed it. They tended to their souls, everything that God had made possible. And again, in Acts 2, chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, we learn how the early church, from its very most formative moments, instituted consistent communal practices and, and personal practices Let me, that were necessary to shape and sustain their lives in Christ. Let me read for you. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everybody was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And again, if that was kind of all a blur, let me just show you this right there. That next slide, they experienced God together. They met regularly together. They were vulnerable together. They practiced their faith together. They learned together, and they witnessed together. Boom, kind of there it all is. In short, they trained together. They trained. Paul talks a lot about this. As we, as followers of Christ, we should be training like athletes, right? Getting ourselves ready, exercising our faith muscles so that when hard times and persecution calls, we, we don't fall away and we don't squander what God has given us. But understand that the training wasn't the thing that conferred or gave them salvation. I mean, I think I've, we've made this point really clear, but I love repeating it over and over and over again. The training wasn't the thing that earned them salvation. The disciplines were simply the ways by which we cooperate and work with God to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Love that phrase. Um, these are some of the most important sustaining activities that work um, kind of like a good gardener, right? E. Stanley Jones writes this in this regard. He says this, you cannot attain salvation by disciplines because that's a gift of God, right? But in the same way, you can't retain it without those disciplines, those sustaining activities. And where did the early church learn all this? It just, did it just happen automatically, naturally? No, I've made that point. Let me make it again. No, no. Um, by spending time with Jesus together and learning from him. In fact, the Bible points out at least three things, there's probably quite a few more, that, that our Savior did by habit. It was habitual with him. It was his custom. Number one, he stood up to read as if it, as it was his custom. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus read the Word of God by habit. That was a consistent thing that he built into his life. Second thing he did, he prayed by habit. Luke 6, verse 12, he went out into the mountain to pray as was his habit. And number three, he passed on to others by habit or by custom by the things he regularly did, um, what God had revealed to him. He taught them again as was his custom. I know I got those passages completely wrong. That's Luke uh, 8, I think. Ignore the citation there. Mm. These simple habits were the foundation habits of his life. These holy habits formed, as we see in the early church, healthy disciplines, healthy disciples, really. 
and a sustaining faith that eventually produced, if you read on in Luke chapter 4 to the end, produced a crop of righteousness, a fruit of the Spirit, a little paraphrase there, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. So God sought them, saved them, sanctified them, and then they worked with God in these sustaining activities. And what they put in, that little part that they put in, God took and just made explode. And of all the disciplines, the habits, customs, um, in the church we call them means of grace, right? Attendance at church, Bible reading, these are all means of grace. These are all the sustaining activities through which God works in our life to sustain what he's already given us. And we've joyfully accepted, we've received it. All of these, uh, John Wesley puts communion at the very top. He, and he loved baptism, don't get me wrong. We, we have two ordinances, if I'm going to use the church language. We have baptism and we have communion. But he rightfully says baptism was, it was kind of a one-time thing and very, 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 very important thing. Don't get me wrong. But he said communion, that's what sustains you. All, you do it multiple, 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 every day, every hour, where baptism, hopefully, you only have to do it once. Communion's at the top of his list. I'm going to quote here. He, he strongly encouraged a close attendance on all the ordinances, but especially to the Eucharist, which he referred to as the grand channel whereby grace is conveyed to us. He believed that communion was much more than a, just a symbolic remembering. And the Nazarene church is wrestling with this right now, as, as many churches have wrestled since the very, very, very beginning. Um, you know, what it, in, in his words, it was... Um, the very real presence of Christ by way of the Holy Spirit that's experienced when one receives the Lord's Supper, as opposed to, and just kind of one idea, this idea of transubstantiation where the, where the elements, the juice and the cracker become the actual blood and, and flesh of Christ through the righteousness of the priest who receives it from the righteousness of Christ. And if you're a Catholic and I got that wrong, I'm terribly sorry. Um, but, but we just, we, we don't believe that. We just believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, we experience God. And we're going to share that. We're going to share communion in just a moment. Um, I just, I, let me continue just a little bit here. Um, there were two strongly held beliefs that John Wesley held on to. The Nazarene church for many years kind of fell away from. Not, I'm not going to say squander. I don't mean that, uh, um, but I've been following it quite closely, and the Nazarene church is very, very rapidly moving back in these two directions, and I just want to share these. And again, <clears throat> this is an interpretation, and so if you disagree by degree with what I'm about to say, um, let's just agree that we're going to see each other in heaven, <laughs> okay? So... Um, two things. One is he, because it was, it was the grand channel of grace, he said you ought to do it as much as possible. In fact, with his followers, he did it every single morning. He said, I don't want you going out into and, 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 and fighting against the enemy without the most grace possible, right? I'm just going to overload you every single morning, Nazarene Church right now, the manual, I think it's about to change. They suggest four times a year, but it also suggests to continue to do it more often. And we're, we're rapidly moving in that direction. But the second thing, this is going to bug some people. I'm just going to say it. It's interpretation. Okay. Um, 
in many situations, what we're going to do here in a little bit, sharing communion, and I know when we watched the video, he kind of, kind of poo-pooed the idea of what we're now using. It's COVID, so, okay, you kind of got to take that in, in consideration there. Um, but John Wesley firmly believed that a person can actually be saved through the sacrament of communion. It's like, it, for him, it was the culmination of God wooing and so this morning, I want to invite you, if you have never accepted Christ this morning and you're seriously considering it and you've thought about this and this isn't just a, okay, whatever kind of thing, because I don't want you to take it in an unworthy manner. But there is this idea that even if you're not saved, I want to invite you. But again, only if you're seriously thinking about this and you've been thinking about it and you've been pondering it and you're thinking... In John Wesley's head, he found that people, when they shared in communion for the very first time in the most clear manner possible, they came face to face with what God did to them, for them, what Jesus did for them. It was all kind of theoretical, kind of theological. And then the very first time, and even before they accepted Christ as their Savior, they take the communion and they just break down and accept Christ. It's like, my Savior did this for me. He was broken and he bled for me. So again, I want to share with you all, if you have not accepted Christ, I'm just going to say a quick prayer right now. If you're listening to me, this can be done at home. It doesn't have to be in a church pew. It doesn't have to be around an altar. By way of the Holy Spirit, you can do this wherever you're at. If you bow your heads, Father, there might be people right now hearing my voice. They want to participate in this incredible, this incredible sacrament, this ordinance, this, this means of grace. Um, and they're listening, and they, they've thought about it, and they've thought about it, and they, they just haven't made that commitment. They've, they just haven't trusted your son yet. So, Father, this morning, by the power of your Spirit, Woo them hard right now. Woo them, Father. And if you're listening to my voice, there's nothing to lose. When you take this step to trust Jesus, you can decide later on, nah, no thanks. But just trust him for just this moment, just this morning maybe, just this first little step. Trust him in what he did for us. Thank you, Father, for anybody listening to my voice who called out to Jesus. I want to trust you this morning. I don't know what I'm trusting. I don't understand everything Jerry's been talking about. It's like goobly gawk. But there's something in my soul that's screaming. Father, thank you for being with us here this morning. Thank you so much for, for, for Dan and, and, and for this entire crazy congregation and their, their just crazy love. Father, our, our prayer now is that we shower this community with this love that you've bestowed upon us. And by doing so, our faith will be strengthened. If we want to experience grace upon grace upon grace, witness season is a great place to start. So Father, give us the courage, give us the, the opportunity Give us the, the wisdom to pray for those opportunities to share with somebody, share with our neighbor how much Jesus has done in our life, proclaiming him. 
Thank you, Father, for everything that you are, have been preparing for this whole community, not just select people. You have been preparing this whole community. And now you're just kind of waiting for somebody to, to step in and move them a step further in their journey. Father, may it be more and more this church that becomes that voice in this community. Father, thank you for everything that you're doing, everything that you did, and everything that you're going to do. We're yours, and you're ours. Thank you, Father. Your son, name I pray. Amen. Have a fantastic day. <laughs>